Please stand and read New City Catechism question 50 with me. What does Christ's resurrection mean for us? Christ triumphed over sin and death by being physically resurrected so that all who trust in him are raised to new life in this world and to everlasting life in the world to come. Just as we will one day be resurrected, so this world will one day be restored. But those who do not trust in Christ will be raised to everlasting death. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The word of God for the people of God. all of you are here this morning. The subject is on the resurrection of Jesus, and the question was, what does Christ's resurrection mean for us? There's a lot that we could cover about the resurrection of Jesus. This portion will be focused more on what the resurrection means for us, so it won't be necessarily a apologetic in nature, that is, it won't give reasons for why an unbeliever might want to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that's what apologetics is, so I'll give a brief explanation of that, but I will cover that the resurrection is a vindication of Jesus, and I'll explain some of what that means. And then I will talk about what it means that it means more than just life after death, but it means life after life after death, and I'll explain that some more. And then I'll talk about it leading us into just not a new creation for us, but a new creation for the whole world. Sounds like a plan, right? Let, let us dig in. First, it's uh, not apologetic or this won't be about necessarily apologetics. Um, a good verse for explaining what apologetics is in the Bible is 1 Peter 3.15, the portion of that verse that says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. So we need to have that, right? We need to have, that's what apologetics is. It's being able to reason with people and be able to explain to someone else why you believe in what you believe. And so that can be great instructionally, and I've done that a lot and will do it in the future, talking about the resurrection, giving us reasons for why we believe in the resurrection. Real briefly, it could be, uh, apologetics could argue that the church itself, the existence of the church, is a reason for the resurrection of Jesus. Like, why does the church exist today? 
Why is Jesus' name still being known all over the world? Why is there hundreds of thousands of believers in the world? When you look at different people that existed during the time of Jesus, there were people that said they were the Messiah before Jesus. They were nailed to a Roman cross, and nobody knows their name today. There were people after Jesus who did the same thing. They rose up in fame, got military backing behind them, rose up to these great revolts, were crushed, killed, died, and along with them, their movement. But the church didn't die. Why? Apologetically, that is one of the reasons for believing in the resurrection, that Jesus truly rose from the dead. That's why we have an existence of a church today. One time, uh, Teresa and I hosted two young men that were with up with people. They were here to perform at the convention center, put on this magnificent play. One was a young man from the Maryland area, and one was from around the world. They come from around the world, and he was a Dutch, tall, bland, uh, blonde guy, a very handsome young man, and, and Max, the other short really good actor guy from Maryland was like, well, he's the eye candy for the girls to come and see, you know, but I'm the one that can act and sing and, you know, look at me, come and look at me, you know, <laughs> and we're like, yeah, we're going to come and watch you guys, and they came by the church, uh, we brought them here to try to show them what we do, and they walked through, and Ingbert, um, the tall blonde guy from Holland, he was like, why would people believe in this stuff you know why people believe in Jesus and just was a pretty agnostic atheist type and and can you believe people you know actually believe like limbs grew out you know and Jesus walked around and you know healed all these people and he was in the back seat as we were driving home and he was just laughing this is what you really believe huh and he was just talking freely and and so I was thinking about ways to talk about Jesus and and uh, Max in the back seat said, well, Ingbert, it's not just believing in that people had their limbs grow out or healed from leprosy and all these disease. You actually have to believe as a Christian that Jesus rose from the dead. So forget all the other miracles. Just look at that one. That's the one that you have to believe in. And could you ever do that? So the discussion headed in the direction of the resurrection and He's like, no, that's ridiculous. And uh, Max said, well, they put a seal on there that was a Roman seal, which meant that the most powerful nation government that existed at the time, maybe ever existed, with all the authority and military backing and governmental authority, said, this is Jesus of Nazareth. He is dead. We put this seal on. This body is dead. It has been crucified under a Roman cross dead and sealed with a Roman stamp that, yes, he's dead, he was really dead. And that body was not there three days later. And they had no answers for that except, and they couldn't explain it, and they never could produce the body. And so one of his apologetic reasonings was that Jesus truly raised from the dead just because all the power of this earth all the, all the authority of this earth could not ge keep Jesus dead in that tomb. It could not produce a dead body. That body was raised from the dead. And Ingbert went, hmm, okay. And we began continuing on our way home. But that's, that's one of the apologetic reasons. There's many others. 
Um, some of the good investigative reporters like Lee Strobel has written many things, uh, the, the, the case for Christ, the case for faith. There's films and about him and his life. Uh, they're on YouTube, um, the case for faith. If you look that up, he was a best, he is a best-selling author. He, he was a journalist for the Chicago Sun, I believe that one, Tribune. Um, he's a legally trained investigative reporter and he, his wife truly became born again and it changed their whole life. They had kind of agreed on some things in marriage and it began to change everything and how they would raise their kid and she began going to church. So he said, I'm gonna study this as an investigative reporter and I'm gonna prove all this wrong so I can steer my wife back in the right direction and my family. Long story short, after 20 months of investigative reporting as a legal investigator, he came to claim that Jesus is God's unique son was truly raised from the dead. So when you start digging into apologetics, when you start investigating the reasons behind the resurrection, uh, you can be, by the power of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit, be convinced. That's what apologetics does. This today is more what we're asking is, what does Christ's resurrection mean for us? See, Paul's writing to Thessalonians who do believe in Jesus, but they're struggling with some things. They don't fully know, like, well, what happens when you die? You know, I mean, we believe in the afterlife. Um, most of the world believes in some form of an afterlife. About I mean, possibly 90% of the world believes in some form of existence and life after death. It's very different and unique what Christianity believes. It's not what the rest of the world, less than 10% are purely, you know, atheistic um, no, you just die and everything ends at death. So almost everybody will believe like, okay, when you die, something happens. The energy in your body or soul goes on or um, the Lion King, um, you know, your, your energy that's within your body goes back into the ground and it becomes grass and then the animals eat it and then you become part of that animal. And then you, so this is Buddhist kind of philosophy. You do have an energy, you do have something that lives beyond this. So everybody believes, you know, most people, numbers, 90% and more, believe in something. Hindus believe in a embodied afterlife, but that embodied afterlife might be, and I'm not making fun of this, but in a cow or in another, you know, they worship that the cows can go anywhere they want because their embodied presence is living on of their grandmother or mother in another embodied being. And they don't know where it might be. You're not the same person. Uh, you're either and this is generalizing things, um, existing in a different form connected to all the energy and nature, your energy goes out into everything, you become one with the universe. This is very much kind of James Cameron kind of energy, Star Wars. You know, there's a force out there and you become part of that greater force. Um, it's very impersonal. Um, but you, you're kind of out with everything. That's the afterlife. Or with Hinduism, it is more of an embodied in something. You do still have some kind of container, but that container isn't still you. You're different in a different form. Christianity says something very different. It says it is actually you. That actually you. The promise is that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, was still Jesus. And Jesus will still be Jesus forever as a man. 
He will forever be Jesus. He didn't go be something. He was glorified in a glorified human body, so it was changed, but Jesus was still Jesus except glorified. And that's what the promise of Christianity is. Jonathan Keyes will still be Jonathan Keyes. We'll still recognize them forever and ever and ever, but in a glorified body. And as Jonathan says, he'll have long flowing hair, and all the hair that he wants. But it will be glorified in many ways. Maybe that's what we can imagine. That's what we're imagining today. Like, what does, does Christ's resurrection mean for us? What is different about this scripture? But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Don't grieve as others do who have no hope. Their hope is different. Their hope is lost. Their hope is that maybe, I mean, Greeks had very much a philosophical idea that somehow your spirit lived on in something, but it wasn't a hope like, you're going to know, Thessalonians, I want you to know that your mom that died is going to come back again with Jesus, and you're going to recognize your mom. She's going to be embodied. He's going to come. So this power of this scripture is since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, see, you have faith in his death, and we're going to talk about what that death vindicated through the resurrection. So the resurrection says that what the death accomplished in Jesus is really real. Like a lot of people can promise you things, and then when they die, well, their promises are, have ended, right? That's what happened to all the other father followers that led these big revolts and still to today. When they die, it's over because it's like, well, what they promised wasn't over. And this is what some of the disciples thought. It's all over on the way to Emmaus Road, you know, and then they see Jesus. Now, this wasn't just the spirit of Jesus. This was a Jesus that when their eyes were open to really who he was, it was like Jesus has not just like died and rose again like they saw Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or any other resurrection. This is a Jesus who has gone through death and is living forevermore. You know, it's very, very different what Jesus. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. That means nobody ever resurrected like Jesus until Jesus resurrected. So even though Jesus raised Lazarus, you know, which was one of the more powerful ones after four days, but he raised um, Jairus' daughter, he raised uh, the son of the widow. They were raised in corruptible bodies that died again. Jesus was raised incorruptible. And this is what we're looking at. Like, what does that mean for us? So the first thing that it does is it vindicates that what Jesus did and accomplished in his death was really real. So when Jesus makes these promises, like in Mark 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many and then he dies. Is that all over? He didn't die to give his life a ransom. What was he talking about? But when he's resurrected and living before him, you say, he really gave his life as a ransom for us. That is, it vindicates Jesus's innocence and that he bore our guilt for our sin. His resurrection is a vindication of his innocence before God and our guilt before God that he literally gave his life, like he said there in Mark 10. He gave his life as a ransom. He paid the cost for us and our sin. He wasn't dying for his own sin. And this is what D.A. Carson explained in our commentary. Uh, he was saying that 
The resurrection of Jesus carries with it many and many wonderful implications. That's what we're looking at. What does the resurrection mean for us as believers? The first is that it vindicates Jesus. In other words, some people thought that if Jesus died on the cross, it could only be because he deserved it. He was declared guilty by a Roman court. And the Old Testament even insists that if someone hangs on a tree, he's cursed under God. But it turns out he did not die as a damned man because of his own sin. Rather, he was bearing the sin of others. And that sacrifice so pleased God, so pleased God, that God raised him from the dead. See, dead couldn't hold him. Dead holds on to sin. And dead couldn't hold on to Jesus because he had no sin. And so he was raised from the dead. And this resurrection is a form of vindication of Jesus. That is, dead couldn't hold on to him. Death could not hold on to him. And D.A. Carson said it's proof positive. This is proof positive that what Jesus said, the claims that Jesus made, were true. He really was all that he said. He says, I am the way and the truth. And the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. I mean, that's anybody can say that. But can somebody rise from the dead and say, yeah, what I said was right. This is proof positive. The resurrection is vindicating Jesus. It is the work of redemption has been fully accomplished. So when he says, I forgive you of your sins, I ransomed you, I came to not be served but to serve and give my life a ransom for you, and he's resurrected and he's living, you can say, I can bank on that word. <clears throat> it is the true word. The resurrection means that. It means it vindicates that what Jesus accomplished in his death really does pay the price for our sins. So when Jesus was hanging on that cross and he said, there's about seven different phrases that Jesus said, but one of them is, at the very end, it is finished. That means... The work of redemption. There can be no more blood spilt for your sin. What he accomplished completely is the power. And in the power of the resurrection, it vindicates that what Jesus accomplished really wipes away sin. Really takes sin that is scarlet, deep dark red, and makes it white as snow. How do I know that? That's just an empty promise. But when the resurrected Jesus is there, it means you have been forgiven. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That's 1 Corinthians 15. And you hear that? That's what Paul is reasoning. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But the resurrection vindicates, because he goes on to say, but Christ has been raised. And so it vindicates that you truly are forgiven. That's the first thing. It, it, it gets bigger, and you can study, of course, this for the rest of your life, the power of the resurrection. You can only imagine all that it accomplishes, but the Word gives us hints into some things that it accomplishes. And so one of them, of course, we sing in Christ alone. There's no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. This is the power of the resurrected Jesus in me, that he died for our sins and he gives us his righteousness through the riches of his grace. But I love this phrase. N.T. Wright said it. He was trying to say that 
See, when Jesus died, there was this time where his body was in the tomb. But Jesus wasn't in the tomb. Like Jesus went somewhere. So in the Apostles' Creed, we say he died, was dead, buried, and he descended into hell, the lower regions of the earth. And this gets pretty deep and gets kind of some hard to un fully understand, but Sheol was the place of the dead. That means that the Bible taught that when everybody died, they went to the place of the dead. But like we read in Psalm, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Like we will go there, our souls will go there, but we won't remain there. You won't abandon me there. So Jesus, this is a prophecy of Jesus. Peter explains this in Acts chapter 2, that that verse wasn't about David, the great king, because Peter goes, David's tomb's out there, and his body's still dead, um, still there, but this is talking about Jesus, so the prophet Peter preaching in Acts 2 and also uh, later in Acts 13 both say this. And so following me, Sheol would be explained like uh, Jesus did in the parable of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. You remember that parable? So he's explaining Sheol, this place of the dead, that everybody goes to this place of the dead. But when this rich man died, he went and he was at a place of kind of suffering, you know, of, and he was looking across this great chasm. This is all Sheol. This is all the place of the dead. This is where all the dead are, uh, but they are separated. And the, the saints that have died in faith in God are over here in this afterlife in Sheol. And they are Abraham in Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort where other comforts are met. But it's not, that's just a temporary state. Are you following me? This isn't the end of our state. So when Jesus died, that's where he, he goes. He descends into. And then there are some few scriptures that talk about he led host. He led out those people in Abraham's bosom into a place with him. But still just their souls. So when he, when he tells the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, that's that place. The par Abraham's bosom, the paradise of the, of the saints of God. In a comfortable place. This isn't the final state. This is a, a temporary state. They call it, theologically, it's called the intermediate state. So it's not your final state. So when N.T. Wright's trying to teach this, he's trying to explain to people through this phrase, and this really helps me. I hope it helps you. I hope it doesn't confuse you. But we're, we're promised not life after death, like that temporary state. We're, we're promised life after life after death. And sometimes you got to say that a couple of times. We're promised life after life after death. So you have that life after death. You do exist in your soul, in your spirit, all that you are in that. But your body is dead. Your body through the curse of sin is dying and it still corrupts and still turns back into dust. And so the promise that... The resurrection Paul's trying to tell the Thessalonians here is that's just the intermediate state. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians when he says to be absent from the body. So you're absent from your body when you die is to be present with the Lord. So you no longer go to Sheol. You know, gone. hell hath expanded itself. The scripture says Sheol, you know, is just all the lower regions of <laughs> hell now. And the saints, when you die now, 
Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 5, he says to die is to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The only way you can be present with the Lord is to be absent from your body. So you die, you're separated. This is not the final state. You guys following me? This is the intermediate state. That's not your end. So that's life after death. It's better. Paul says in, to the Philippians, you know, to, uh, for, to me, uh, to, to live is Christ, to die is gain. There's gain. I'm dying. I'm going, my soul's going to be with Jesus. But that's not the final state. Paul promises through all the, the writing and the word of God promises all through the writing. This is very important because it has to do with uh, restoring everything that God meant for you to have which is a restored, glorified body. So saints are, Jesus is the only one with that. Jesus, he went and he came back and he is glorified. When he appeared on the earth, he was in a glorified body. He's the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead, never to die again. Never to die again. Everyone else raised before that died again. So he was in a different body. And that's the promise that Paul wants to explain to these Thessalonians. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So it's life after life after death. The Thessalonians are not questioning or uninformed. Is there life after death? Is there some kind of afterlife? But what does it look like to die in Christ as believers that believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus? And he says, God will signal Christ to return. And God, through Christ, will bring with Christ those believers who have died in Christ, in their glorified bodies, like Christ. This is the second, this is the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body. So like Christ in his glorified body, he will return with those, not in some spiritual, ethereal way, but in glorified bodies like the one Jesus has right now. He's promising the Thessalonians this. You have a great hope. Don't mourn and grieve like the rest of the world who have no hope. You have this hope, and this is the hope that he's preaching to the Thessalonians, to the Corinthians, and all of the churches that this hope as Christians is just some Gnostic idea. If you don't know what that word means, it's just Greeks had this Gnostic idea about spiritual ethereal things and spiritual resurrections, and Jesus was only raised spiritual, not bodily, and they put all of this truth. Uh, John was facing this. If you want to read uh, the letters of, God, of John, uh, in First John especially, that's what he's confronting. He's confronting this Gnostic idea that Jesus only raised spiritually, and that's really all you ever are, is a spirit. And so these things, is, it's more than that. I want you to know that the, correct, the, the resurrection is life after life after death. <laughs> just, I hope that helps you see that, that it's not just the intermediate state, that, but there'll be return of the Lord with the glorified saints in their glorified resurrected body in the same body that the resurrected Jesus has. That's the promise of heaven. That's the promise that Paul was telling these Thessalonians have. This is worth everything for. This is worth of the suffering you're undergoing. It's only momentary and temporary. All the affliction that you're undergoing, because you see, the church was more like the church in the rest of the world, not here in America. It was under great persecution. Uh, I'm thankful for that. I get to preach and go home and watch the Super Bowl today or whatever I want to do. I get to come here. I'm not necessarily worried about somebody breaking in and killing me, arresting me, and throwing me in jail. But the rest of the world, that's what it looks like. That's what Christianity looks like in the rest of the world. 
in, in, in the majority of the world, not all of the world. But it still exists today, and that's what it looked like to the Thessalonians. And they're like, why should we suffer like this? I mean, and Paul's saying, because there's something that far outweighs this. All that you're going through, stay true to your faith, believe in Jesus. You know, when Paul tells the Romans to confess Jesus as Lord, that's what it means to be a Christian, that if you'll confess Jesus as your Lord, Romans 10, and what? Believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead. Believe him. Hold on to that faith, Thessalonians. Don't give it. I've seen other people under extreme persecution walk away from their faith, deny their faith. Paul's saying this, and I think maybe we have seen that too. When things get hard or don't go our way, we abandon our faith. But Paul's saying this is the time to dig into your faith and believing in what the resurrection means. That's what we're asking today. What does the resurrection mean? It means that there is life. You. You. And who you are. You won't just be embodied in a, some other animal, cow, or another person. You will exist. You will have memories. You will have your, your good memories. It will be glorified. Um, so we don't know fully what it is, and this is what Paul begins to try to ask in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, how will the dead be raised? With what kind of body will they come? This is what the Corinthians were asking, too. So if you're a little confused today, that's okay. So were they, and so were a lot of people in the Bible. So the Corinthians were asking, Paul, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they have? You're saying we will have a body. And he says... This, he kind of gives this analogy in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. He says, the resurrection of the dead, first of all, I want you to know what is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. So that's hard to imagine. Think of that, imperishable. He goes on to say, it was sown in dishonor, it'll be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it'll be raised in power. So that imperishable, he, other, other words for that is immortal. Sown mortal, but it'll be raised. So thinking about immortality is a hard thing to grasp or imperishable i like that word that esv uses there because everything perishes get those new cars right and then some people keep them in their garage forever and they pop out this 1945 you know 1952 and they're like they've never hardly driven it and it's like wow that's imperishable but it's not those things get in there a little drop of water a little bit of rust starts forming you know i scrape it out and put it back in there but everything perishes like plastic you think Plastic stays around forever, but then they go, well, a toothbrush has a lifespan of 200 years. Uh, a disposable diaper has a lifespan of 500 years, and blah, blah. So that sounds like a long time, right? And it is. I'm not saying, you know, plastics, you know, are, are bad because they just last so long. They don't decompose. Like everything else decays way faster than that, right? Everything around us is decaying. Our bodies are decaying. Um, my family um, is on a, a thing together, and we like to post all these pictures i'm from a real big family and we post all these pictures of us when we were young we always you know at people's weddings and you know the beautiful day of the most beautiful we were on this earth at our wedding day or or when we were even littler kids and they're so cute they're just beautiful and that's not how we look anymore you know that's not at all and one of my brothers said is that you brenda on the far left i mean this is his own sister you know he's like is that you She's like, yeah, that's me when I was a little girl. You know, that's how I actually looked then, you know. And so things decay. They do have and have discovered, if you're interested in a side rabbit trail, that there's a bacteria that consumes plastic. I thought that was cool. I did a lot of 
little bit of research into that. That's kind of just newly discovered by some Japanese in like what, 2016, I think, but that's further, and it consumes, you know, plastic. So they can use these things to decompose plastic faster. So they're talking about advancing this bacteria. It's real expensive to form it and then get it on plastic and it eats it and consumes it even faster, speed up that uh, disposable decaying process because there's bacteria. I guess there won't be any bacteria. Or if they are, they're going to be friendly ones because there's going to be no more decay. That's part of the, like your body, to, to try to think of this, I you know, I'm sorry, but just to think of the resurrection that you'll be raised imperishable is just unfathomable. I mean, it's, it's hard, and you're like, oh, I don't know. That's not that exciting to me. I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's really exciting to be, to have that same glorified body that God always wanted us to have. See, that's what Adam and Eve were in the garden for. Uh, they were in the garden to live forever. How? In a body. That's how God made them. He made and fashioned a body for them. He breathed into them the breath of life. And he said, this is how you're going to exist forever. Sin brought the decay, death, and destruction of that body. And so you're not just going to be raised some spiritual thing, ethereal spirit, a spiritual body, yes, but still embodied. Like he originally meant you to be embodied forever. And then not in a, some other body, in your body. But just one that can't ever decay again imperishable race. So this is who Jesus is returning with. He's telling the Thessalonians that. He's coming with, uh, well, I could wax on. But 1 Corinthians 15.40 said, when Paul's trying to explain this, he's saying there's heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly body is of one kind and the glory of the earthly body is another. And he talks about the glory of the sun and the other, the glory of the moon. This is just a way of trying to say, I don't know how you can imagine what it's going to be like but imagine the light that the moon has which is only a reflection of the sun and you're actually going to be like more like the sun <laughs> this is like your glorified body and then he t talks about stars and he says there's varying glory of stars have you ever gone out at night and looked at the stars you like studied you know hey that's a pretty bright star oh that's vega or that's a really bright star that's Sirius. And they say that's one of the brightest stars. And they measure them in magnitude of their brightness. And it's all measured that way in stars. Well, stars vary in glory to another. And then there's some that grow in fainter and fainter. And to where you can hardly see them. And even with the Hubble telescope or something outside of our atmosphere, they're so faint that you can barely see them. It's kind of like that. Like your body now is like that faint brown dwarf or white dwarf or red, red dwarf that has faded. These faint stars. And your glorified body is going to be like Sirius, the brightest star in the heavens. You know, so Paul's just trying to explain it. It's going to be not just the state when you die that you go in an afterlife to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But at his return, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians that when he returns, he will, through Jesus, God will bring with him all of those that have died before you. So don't worry, Thessalonians. That's hope. That's a way bigger hope than I thought the hope was. And I hope you got some kind of grasp of that today. Amen? May we go into the world and make disciples of Jesus. May the Lord help us to show 
of Jesus's long suffering and kindness toward us that that led us to repentance and to the knowledge of God and to belief and faith in the gospel that we'll be able to share that with others. We'll be able to say this is the hope that lies within me. It's a hope that will lead others to that same love that we have found in Jesus. I pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song of praise to the Lord after we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes that when you come together, you're to celebrate the Lord's Supper. When you come together, when you come together, when you come together, celebrate and remember the Lord's death until he returns. And now today, saints, you, you kind of know like when he returns, it's with something really very glorious, right? <laughs> That's when he's returning. So we're going to do this. And the church around the world will continue to do this until Jesus returns in his glorified body that he has now. And others who believe in him, believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, will return with him in that same glorified state. We're going to celebrate this till he comes. And Jesus says, I will not drink from this cup again until I do with you in heaven, in that glorified state. He's waiting quite a long time, it seems like to us, a couple of thousand years. But God says that a thousand years are like one day to him. So time is very different when you inherit immortality, right? So... Jesus, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, he instituted this and he took bread on the night that he was betrayed. He took bread and gave thanks to the Father for it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Is it truly given for us? Yes, he's raised from the dead. He truly gave his body for us on that cross. And truly our redemption is finished on the cross this is my body given for you take and eat of it all of you and do this in remembrance of me let us partake of the bread together in like manner he took the cup and he said this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood given for you for the remission of sins take and drink of it and when you do this do this in remembrance of me and remember my death until I return and come again let us partake of the cup together we thank you so much father for the gift of your son Jesus and God almighty we thank you that through Jesus you will return and bring with you all of those who have fallen asleep in Christ in faith that believe in your death and resurrection Lord we thank you for this glorious hope and all the saints said amen
So, praise God. Here we go.
scripture went on to say that the we who are left and alive until the Lord comes shall not precede those who have died because as the word commanded at the sound of the archangel's voice and God's trumpet call I don't know I wonder how loud that'll be yeah. <laughs> probably be louder than that might shock us a little more but hopefully we will all be prepared amen Lord I pray that you bless your people to be near you and close to you and be blessed immersed in your loving kindness May they go out in that attitude of your love to this lost world and show forth the light of Jesus, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love one another. Love one another. So when we do that again, we'll, we'll let's just make sure we practice that. Because, I mean, I'm, I go high on that part, and then I go low here. I'm glad you made it back. And then I do, I, know. I don't know exactly what I do without doing that. We'll just make sure we go over it again so we can, you know, do all the, the parts. Right, right, right. Yeah, when you're asking me, I'm like, I'm not sure what I do. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, so the answer is yes, both. Thank you, Rachel. Oh, sweet arms. Thank you, Jana. That was beautiful. Thank you. Right. 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 <laughs> I'm like, ah, nobody's shot. We're good. Let's go. Yeah. I heard That's it sound like that one time when I was playing basketball with a bunch of teenagers. 